Hello, welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. This podcast is about how the paradigm for data access has changed. Data allows businesses to build products faster, make more informed decisions, and increase both revenues and profits. Yet, in today's decentralized world, getting data to the remote workforce, to distributed applications, and even to things like artificial intelligence engines is a challenge. Data Unchained digs into the challenges and solutions to make data a globally accessible resource. I have two great guests today that are deeply immersed into the technology as well as the pain points that customers have in dealing with these decentralized environments. So welcome, I have Chad Smith from HP Anywhere and Mike Bott from Hammerspace. Appreciate you both jumping on. So I've had the pleasure to work with both of you in various um, formats and roles over the years. But for our audience, maybe Mike, if we could start with you, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and then kind of what is your passion in this space and how technology is helping with these issues? I'm about 25 years deep in a storage engineering um, career. I've been a systems architect, uh, developer, I've run teams, uh, but I just, I love startups. I love building software. I love building teams. And most of my focus has been on HPC and media and entertainment for the entirety of my career. So big systems, very high aggregate throughput, and then along with all the specialized um, high throughput and large compute stuff that media entails. Uh, so um, I've been with, yeah, I've been with a variety of storage companies. Hammerspace is the latest one I've been at. I'm almost a year old here now. So tell us a little bit more in media and entertainment, for example, um, what is the role of data? I think most of us think about media and entertainment is about going to the the movie theater or onto Netflix and seeing content, kind of how does that tie to the technology work that you do? So it's been fun to actually be um, on the IT side in the bowels of the media and entertainment industry, because even when it was just film, a lot of that stuff was still being run through as data before it was turned back into film to show in the theater. So uh, even a while ago, we were uh, dealing with very large data sets and very high throughput. Um, I mean, I'm talking, you know, several gigabytes a second a decade and a half ago. So so the it, media entertainment has always been on the bleeding edge of performance. And I have a lot of fun playing in that environment. Um, the flip side is also true, too. If you're if you're not just trying to send a whole lot of data to a single machine so they can view a very high resolution image, you're trying to send a lot of assets to a lot of machines so that they can draw pictures for you. They can create pictures for you in, in animation or in visual effects. So there's tons of compute and tons of network bandwidth and tons of storage used for these things. Um, a, a common example I like to throw out is simulation today. Uh, you, you can use compute farms to simulate the behavior of fluids in very large volumes and then use that information to create beautiful looking frames of film that escape the uncanny valley where, where the smoke, the fire, the water all just looks very believable, even though it's an animated uh, picture. And what folks have been finding out is using more and more capacity, storage capacity for simulation, leads to better looking results. And so that's an example of one very compute intensive driver of storage capacity in the industry that's just growing. You mentioned HPC, that's high performance computing, if folks aren't familiar with the acronym. Um, and, you know, generally when people think of high performance computing, they're thinking of science, maybe it's weather forecasting, it's 
um, genomic sequencing, you know, things like this is heavy research. But there's a lot of HPC in media and entertainment as well. Wouldn't you say that that's true, that these really performance-intensive, data-intensive markets, there's a lot of commonality um, in the technology that solves their needs? Absolutely. Like like some of the access patterns might differ. Some of the, the actual geometry of the data can differ a bit. But the, the end job is getting a lot of bits into these memory spaces that you can run compute against. And you're trying to do that in parallel because your problem is embarrassingly parallel. So when you have 100 frames of film to render, uh, you hand each frame to a different machine and give all those machines the assets. And, you know, there's all this stack of software that deals with handing those, those assets out. But the end result is you have to build these storage systems large enough that they can deliver data to the machine farm so that the machine farm isn't waiting on I.O. to start rendering. That, that's usually a game. And it's exactly the same game inside the, the traditional HPC markets that you mentioned. Awesome. Chad, let's hand things over to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So much like Mike, I've been 20 plus years in the industry. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I decided to make a transition over into the remote desktop space. I saw an opportunity and need uh, to have uh, you know these M&E workloads that uh, Mike has just described uh, run remotely, geographically dispersed, right? Where the individual couldn't make it into the office uh, to work on these clusters but yet um, they, they needed access to that remotely. And that's kind of where I saw the value in, in making the transition over. I'm now working for a company called Teradici, which is under the umbrella of, of HP Systems. We got acquired back in October. So it's been quite a journey for us as a part of this acquisition and having more and more exposure to you know, high-end compute and uh, the needs and wants of people, of course, in the M&E industry and, and other verticals as well. You know, one of the things I've always found interesting kind of watching your career path, Chad, is um, you've been involved in a lot of the new technologies that are coming out. Um, when we worked together um, years ago, when cloud was first coming about, this idea that cloud was fantastic. Everyone was so excited about the opportunity it brought, but actually deploying technology in the cloud is not easy. And it's not the same as a traditional IT administrator's skill set. So I think it's interesting that you've really leaned in on figuring out how to move technology kind of out of the data center further from that kind of center of mass. But, you know, what's driving that kind of interest for you? General, it's just the need for elasticity, right? And I think what we mentioned earlier about, you know, the pandemic uh, and this need to work from home uh, and, and having uh, work new and different workflows available remotely uh, really kind of calls to what the advantages of cloud are. Right. So just kind of following the trends and looking at the, you know, the there's all kinds of automation tools that you can take advantage that speak specific cloud APIs that facilitate a lot of these workflows to be elastic and to allow individuals to control costs. Uh, you're never going to get rid of the corporate office. You're not going to get rid of the, uh, the, the corporate data center, but they have the ability to burst dynamically out to the cloud. Uh, is was really interesting to me, and it really played well into Teradici's use case. We were we were one of the first protocols in cloud. Uh, we support all three clouds, and of course on prem. Uh, so it really naturally played well for us for as these individuals migrated to take advantage of resources in the cloud that we were there to make that transition with them. That's a great segue into one of the topics we wanted to talk about, Chad. So thinking about remote workforce or remote users, um, was is this new just in the last couple of years since? COVID occurred and the workforce migration we're all aware of, or has this industry been dealing with that challenge longer than that? I think the industry in general 
has had a requirement for remote use cases and remote workers. Um, you know, if you look at the the history of Tiradichi, we we originally started as a hardware organization making dedicated cards and what we refer to as zero client. We kind of coined that term in the industry. Uh, and that was really to to uh, to chase uh, stock traders that were basically too remote from Wall Street, but they had to be close enough to uh, to make their trades on time with a low enough latency. So that was kind of the pedigree that Terry G first got started in. Um, and we've been around for over a decade before the pandemic hit. But since the pandemic hit, it really has shown a spotlight on this remote use case uh, where people needing to remote into powerful, highly available machines uh, to do their work, uh, to augment their their, their existing uh, workflows and workforces. Are you seeing that as you talk to customers and the studios and visual effects houses that you work with a lot in the media space in particular, um, is it primarily that the artists just want to work from their home offices or is there just a shortage of talent in the major city centers? Kind of what is driving the need for the remote workforce? You name it, right? It really is all the above. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, it was chasing tax incentives and geographically dispersed workforces uh, and the talent pools, right? Because they were very geographically dispersed. So that was even pre-pandemic. Uh, but the pandemic has really shown that now it has been a focus from work from home, where it has evolved from a necessity to a value add for employment, employee and retention, right? So now you're giving them the opportunity to work from home three days, two days out of the week as an incentive to keep them employed within an organization. So it really has evolved and changed. And there's definitely been a massive increase in the amount of content under demand and being created, right? Through things like Netflix and Apple TV and all the different forums that we get, we consume content through. There's just more and more content being created all of the time. Um, Mike, what do you see as the challenges that this remote workforce is, is kind of trying to um, overcome or what is it that makes them able to be productive in these remote environments? Challenge wise, it's been interesting to watch because like Chad alluded to, it was kind of happening before, but all the COVID shutdowns ramped a bunch of like sending workers home into high gear. But additionally, in the media and entertainment industry, it shut down principal photography, right? It shut down production, live production. And so like you couldn't have audience, you couldn't get crews together, you couldn't bring the talent together. So all of a sudden people figured out, hey, we've got to pivot to animation. And and so you had this giant swell in the demand for animation and you couple that with the pull through demand of everybody staying at home and watching the, the various streaming services. And you got kind of this perfect storm that blew animation and visual effects up. It absolutely blew it through the roof. I have seen the most ridiculous growth over the last uh, couple of years um, in that space. And it has to do with all of those factors I mentioned. And so the growth of the de demand for animation, of course, draws everybody into the market. Everybody starts producing animation and that leads to the problems that Chad was talking about. So you've got everybody hired up in the, in the, the usual media hotspots. Everybody is hired. Everybody has a job who wants a job in the, in the space. And so now when you're a big studio trying to expand so that you can take on new projects, you know, maybe you're you're one of the big major studios or maybe you're a subcontractor for Netflix. It just it doesn't matter. Everybody has the same problem. You can't hire anybody locally. So now you've got to figure out now you've got to go elsewhere 
And so you have to solve that problem with remote desktops because most big entities that own intellectual property are not comfortable putting data inside someone else's house when they're just a subcontractor or a remote employee. They want to keep their data within their four walls, which during the pandemic sort of extended to the edge of their cloud footprint. So you've got this case where remote desktop enables companies uh, security while also enabling them to hire talent wherever. And, and that's a big deal. That's a big deal in the space. I remember back, oh gosh, I don't know, 10 years ago when there was a big news about some Sony's content being leaked before the feature film was released and the massive amount of money that was involved with early leaks of footage. And you can imagine how that's exasperated by this remote workforce, all having potentially access to this content. It's an interesting challenge. Um, so this remote desktop idea, I, I, I think it would be worth spending just a second here talking about why the cloud isn't enough to solve this problem. And we have these massive companies like Amazon and Microsoft who have these massive cloud infrastructures all the, over the world. Which problem are they not solving? Why can't people just put everything on the cloud? I'll add that there's a cost component to that, right? And a cloud only makes sense when there's a level of elasticity uh, and there's a price associated to that elasticity. And you need a cost justify that elasticity in order to justify the price, right? So it really is kind of an, an on-demand uh, situation where you need to burst the cloud to take advantage of these available resources, right? Uh, whereas in the majority of your day-to-day -day production work will most likely happen in your normal studio type uh, location in business, right? And if you think about getting data to where it needs to be used or content, I, I, I picture this idea that the way films are made is you stand in Hollywood or Pinewood Studios or somewhere, and you have cameras taking pictures of film in this idea of animation and visual effects, and maybe also film as well. Um, how does that data get to these remote users? I think that's a fascinating concept. I mean, are we putting film buckets in airplanes, Mike, or, <laughs> you know, like what is the modern version of that? That's, that's definitely where it started. Uh, there was definitely a company. Uh, I was with a company in the past that tried to address that. Uh, directly. But yeah, sneaker netting is real. It still happens. You get in these remote locations and you just don't have any good data options. So you've got to do you've got to do stuff like that. But there's this other layer, like while you're dealing with an animation workflow where there's might be different people geographically distributed working on different aspects of the same shot, you know, the same data, the same set of assets. Um, and you've got to be able to take changes that one artist is making and make those changes available to another artist. And when you look at the traditional solutions uh, um, of just the, the the old storage system vendors that are out there, um, when they talk about making a replica of data in another location, it's an entire directory, like like or, or a share or a volume, you know, depending on the granularity of that that storage vendor. And to Chad's point, making an entire replica of my one petabyte of on-prem data. So someone can work on four gigabytes of it makes zero sense, especially when the cost of storing that data is at cloud levels, right? Where it's per per gigabyte per minute. Uh, and and so you have to pay, uh, you end up having to pay a premium if you're gonna put that whole data set out there. Um, I, I was on a, a call a little while ago uh, with someone from one of the big uh, cloud providers, and they were basically stating to the, the prospect, hey, look, we've got the, the compute, we've got the pipes, we've got the object storage, but we don't have the orchestration. We don't have the thing that moves the data where it needs to be when. 
And that's kind of where Hammerspace can come in. You know, Hammerspace can provide that data orchestration layer so that you can have a petabyte of data and someone can see the namespace, but they only pull the stuff they need or one of your production systems only places the stuff they need on the system close to them or close to their virtual workstation. Yeah, to Mike's point, you know, we've talked to a lot of customers where they've admitted that 80% of their total cost is the cost of storage in the cloud, right? It's not the workstations that you're you're working off of. It's the cost of keeping that on high-performance storage. So if you can mitigate those costs as best you can, it, again, Molly, that makes to your point, makes it changes the economics of, of, of running in cloud, right? If you had an, an orchestration layer that was intelligent enough to shift and move data around on demand, that's part of the problem. And that's the inherent problem of the solution is typically today, it's a manual decision that one has to make. What directories, what files are needed at what time? And it's a balance that has to be, yeah, you have to strike between cost and availability, right? And I think that's where the Hammerspace solution is very complementary to ours, is, is in making that decision automatically for the end users. That sounds incredibly complex to try to do that manually, thinking about the amount of people involved and the amount of content involved and trying to get that right. That sounds like a tough job for at least one and probably a bunch of people in an organization. Yeah, like pipeline design has included data transfer as a consideration forever. You know, like I've definitely worked with data transfer companies in the past and, and you have to build it in. Like the traditional way of thinking is that I have one workflow step and then I build a workflow step that transfers data to the next workflow step if those are geographically far flung. And, and so you're, you're kind of engineering that. But if you think about that process, when you execute the workflow step that copies data somewhere else, you've got a fork of the data now. Okay, the, the data that transfers to that other system is not coupled at all with the data on the other system except by the workflow tools. And when you bring in an orchestration solution such as Hammerspace that can move data around on demand or in response to metadata events from external systems, all of a sudden you've kind of raised that waterline. Now my hands in the shot, you've raised the waterline of what the file system can do to include data transfer. And all of a sudden your thinking can change because you can know that if someone makes a change to a file for a particular shot in India, very soon that change, I mean, and I'm talking seconds, okay, very soon that change is known about by all the other sites, but it's only pulled if that change is necessary in those other sites, or if an external system tells us to make it happen. And that's, that's a big differentiator. Like, I, I, I see a lot of parallels, Chad, actually, between the efficiencies that our on-demand plus uh, metadata approach can bring to storage footprints in kind of the same way that your technology can bring efficiency to workstation footprints in the cloud. Yeah, it's kind of funny you mentioned that, Mike, because it harkens back to the days of having replicated replication uh, policies that are waterfalling into other replication policies. And it just creates this just complete mess of a replication policy that's just, it's just not production ready, right? Whereas in a solution where it's an orchestrating changes across multiple networks or kind of multiple hubs and synchronizes it. It's, it's the real value prospect of, of, of what Hammerspace brings, right? Is that level of flexibility. A lot of the folks who join this podcast and as I get feedback after different episodes, one of the things I hear is folks are joining in to listen because they 
generally know that the world has become more decentralized, more remote, whether it's infrastructure, people, businesses, whatever it is. And they like to learn from experts who have helped with the transition, gone through the transition. Um, where do you guys go to learn? So if, you were, if you're thinking to our audience of who's trying to figure out how to embark on their journey to solve these needs, um, where would you go to learn? Conferences, things you read, anything like that, user forums? So I find myself uh, spending a lot, like looking for communities, uh, spending a lot of time. I'm a humongous fan. I'm going to give a shout out to Studio Sysadmins. I am a big fan of that community, um, even though they can occasionally be kind of mean to vendors, but that's okay. We probably deserve it. Um, they uh, they discuss everything around uh, running these production studios, and it's it's mostly focused on on visual effects and and animation studios, but includes live production stuff as well. And they just they can they discuss every topic. There are so many knowledgeable people in there that will respond to a question you ask. Um, I, I could recommend for for folks who are getting started out who really want to learn um, that might be a good place to to hop in and ask questions. Um, another place I like to go to learn is in these very uh, focused um, uh, trade shows. So, uh, you know, I don't feel that NAB is, is that focused around something like this, but something like Seagraph is perfectly focused on this kind of environment. And you can learn tons just by walking around and getting demos from the vendors, talking to the vendors about the problems they're solving. And, and as a vendor who, who works these trade shows, I'm totally happy to talk to you, even if you're a student. I, I will talk to you about what we do and how it helps and, and why it changes things. And, and so, yeah, those are, those are actually my two favorite uh, places to go learn. Focused trade shows and then the really focused internet communities. That's great, Mike. And I'll do a little plug here real fast. So <laughs> just finish this book, right? So I uh, I kind of do a similar process as Mike, but I like to get a big picture, right? I like to take a look at what is the, the next mover technology uh, and how you can practically get to some of these big ideas, right? That everyone's talking about the metaverse, but what is the metaverse? Why the metaverse and when the metaverse, right? So being a technologist, I like to take kind of like what I like to call blocking and tackling technologies and seeing how they'll get to some of these big picture ideas that people are describing today, right? And then further go down that rat hole technically to say, hey, look, you know, if there's a problem with the way that the internet runs, right, how do, how do we fix that, right? Um, how do we consume metaverse, right? How do we uh, enable people that are geographically dispersed to access the metaverse, right? So there's all kinds of ideas. I'm a big picture guy. I love to think about the big eye, the big, bright, big next thing, right? What's going to push the needle forward? Uh, but then you got to take out a couple layers back and say, practically, what, what other layers of technology needs to change to enable these, these, these bigger ideas, right? And we spent a lot of time talking about media and entertainment today. And it's such an interesting workflow that I think everyone can relate to because we all consume media in one way or another. But just as we close up, um, which other industries are struggling with the same kinds of problems? Which other types of customers do you talk to in your just day-to-day -day jobs? I'll start off with, um, you know, we're kind of industry-wide, right? Everybody's having the same problem right now. Teradici really focuses on the uh, people that need to have a build the lossless color accurate experience, right? And that's traditionally seen in the m and &E industry. But they're not the only ones that are having the same problem, right? People in game tech, people in engineering, architectural and design are having the same problem. 
and even people in the, the in the, the Fed space, right? Um, they need security more than they need to build a loss list, but our product provides the security with the build a loss list. Uh, we're actually seeing a lot of a lot of movement in gas and oil too. I will tell you that we're also seeing an upswing of what we call the task worker. The task worker is now not just working in spreadsheets, but they're actually seeing full motion video as a part of their day-to-day activities, right? And that requirement is pushing them into what we consider a high graphics use case as well. Any others that you would add, Mike, or is that pretty comprehensive? That, that was pretty comprehensive. I, like in the last, in the recent past, I've worked with a, a very large um, engineering company, a very large aerospace company, um, a, a very good sized medical devices company. Um, and I know that these problems exist across uh, biotech and genomics as well. We're talking large data sets with a need to to share them across multiple geographies and a need to exchange research data that you get from running against a baseline big data set. Um, every, everyone needs access to that. So you could have a situation where tons of that data is being created in one site. It's being consumed by researchers and other sites. Um, so you, lots of opportunity, I think, uh, mostly, of course, in the industries that, that create massive amounts of data. Uh, Chad mentioned oil and gas, which is a, a, another place where we're seeing some some upswing as well. Yeah, and I'll add to Mike's point quickly, too, that the way that they consume the data and interpret the data is all has a high visual front end on it as well. Right. So even they're talking about massive amounts of unstructured data, semi-structured data, the way that they view and interpret and model that data is through a high-end 3D visual application, right? So it, it is running across the, the, the gambit where both of our solutions come into play together and across multiple industries. Thank you both for taking the time to do the podcast. I know you're busy and, you know, taking a moment to kind of share our knowledge is a super cool thing that our industry is great about doing. Um, but thank you both for taking the time today and perhaps we'll invite you back on a future episode. Cool. Thanks for having having us. Take care. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Thank you.